You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. My name is uh, Ben Golder and along with Kathleen Birrell at La Trobe and the absent but very much in our hearts, Sanjay Pahuja from the University of Melbourne, who is unfortunately uh, away leaving Kathleen and myself to be in charge of the shop. For the benefit of people listening to this in the future as an audio recording, I'm, I've got my hand out preventing the cat from jumping over the keyboard, just to add a little bit of local flavour to events. Um, Kathleen, uh, Sanja and myself uh, are co-conveners of the Academic Skills Circle, uh, of which you are joining to hear a discussion about one of our perennial, a hardy perennial topics of, as I would frame it, how to give a good conference paper. Um, but as Danish Sheikh, our very, very special guest for today, has called it the art of the conference paper. And I think the art in that title is a very artful one. Um, so I'm very much looking forward uh, to what he has got to tell us. But just before I introduce him really, really briefly, and um, before we get rolling, I should acknowledge that I am, we're probably all zooming in from different Aboriginal lands across uh, Australia. I'm zooming in from Gadigal land in the inner west of Sydney. And I want to acknowledge that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land and to pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past and present and especially extend those respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander uh, people on this call. Okay, so again, just to remind everybody, get us back into the groove and for the benefit of anybody who has strayed into this Zoom room for the first time, the idea behind these sessions um, is that we take the opportunity to slow down and attend to various constituent elements of academic craft. So I suppose on one level, what we're doing here is an exercise in skills development, and we're shortly to hear about that. But I think perhaps more fulsomely than that, it's an opportunity to convene, to come together. Um, so it's more about, I suppose, building research communities and re research cultures where we come together as a group uh, predominantly, I think, of high degree researchers, but also of early career researchers to reflect upon the whys and wherefores of particular aspects of what it is we're doing as scholars. And so one of the things that I always have cause to reflect on is what, it, what, what am I actually doing when I'm giving a conference paper? Um, and I think it bears repeated reflection on this particular topic. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? How, how might we do it? Uh, better or perhaps more artful and to, more, more artfully. Um, perhaps to that end, I should now introduce Danish, who I'm sure will be known to many of you on this call. If he's, if you know, he's not, I'll just briefly explain that he is doing a PhD at Melbourne Uni Law School, where he's coming to us from today. He's uh, studying at ILLA. He's a scholar in law and literature, has a background as a human rights lawyer and is a um, published playwright. And so we are really excited, especially to hear his reflections today on the theme of, here we go, the art of the conference paper. I'm gonna pass it over. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, so good afternoon. I'd also like to acknowledge that I speak from Wurundjeri land and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, so thanks again, Ben. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks, Sandhya in absentia. Thanks, Angela, for giving me this chance to reflect. I, I've got so much from the skill circle, and I do appreciate this opportunity to, we might call it a sharing, but I think it's also, I'm kind of going to solicit 
points from you as well. So some of the things that I might have learned about presenting um, and also apologies in advance to those who only have access to an audio recording of this in the future, because as I'll kind of go on to note, part of the art of the conference presentation is also relying on the textual and the visual. But anyway, um, I want to start by telling you about a poem uh, and it's a poem by the American poet, Elizabeth Bishop. And it's a poem about the art of losing. So it takes the form of a willanelle, which essentially means that it has a particular phrase that it keeps repeating in a rhythmic pattern every few verses. So the art of losing isn't hard to master. That's the phrase. And every few verses, we come back to it. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Um, and that's the refrain as Bishop talks about losing small things, tiny things, key things, objects, ephemera. The art of losing isn't hard to master. And now the things that she loses get bigger and vaster, moving houses, losing cities. The art of losing isn't hard to master. And she's telling us this. But for us as readers, the losses start to seem unbearable. Still, she soldiers on and she's gotten so good at the art of losing that at the poem's end, she speaks about losing this one great love with a degree of nonchalance. So even losing you, so now she's now addressing this lover, um, even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. So here is something small, but something that feels big, that feels monumental, the joking voice, a gesture I love, but even losing that isn't hard to master. And so she repeats that phrase for us one last time. It's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like write it. That write it in italics is the poet telling herself urging herself to go on. So she's clearly struggling to say this last bit, to write this last bit. It's that thing that's stuck in her throat. The art of losing isn't hard to master show, but this one, this one feels hard. So it may look like um, disaster. Okay, so what I've done here is I've presented a poem. Uh, this is what the poem looks like. I'm not asking you to read it, but just to give you a sense of its form. And then I took that form and then I mangled it, right? Uh, I made it into something else. So I want to take this very brief foray into Elizabeth Bishop's poem as an entry point and as a model for what I'd like to convey. So I'm going to invite us to think about the presentation across three modes. So presentation as translation, presentation as a form of connection and presentation as an art. And um, I'd like you to think of these as prompts, so as an invitation to reflect on your own practice of presenting, and maybe that's a conversation we can have um, after I kind of go through these points. So with the first one, in terms of presentation as translation, so what did I attempt to do with this poem? I, I tried to present it. I tried to carry its meaning over from the written page where it looks like this once again. Um, you know, so there's a particular arrangement of lines and stanzas an arrangement where the form carries a meaning. And I took that and I shifted it to this, whatever it was that you just saw now. So the presentation was a translation of the poem. And this was an unsuccessful attempt 
in one sense. It is an unsuccessful attempt because it is impossible to adequately translate a poem. It is impossible to adequately translate a poem because it is impossible to carry meaning perfectly from this, from this one form, so this form, to this form, which was my presentation of the poem, right? But what's true for the poem is also true for much of what we write. So it is impossible to carry meaning neatly over from our academic writing to our presentations about said writing. We will never be able to capture the complexity of what we write, its rigor, its style, whatever its style might be when we try and present it. And understanding that is in one sense liberating because it frees us from the obligation of trying to capture our paper as it is, right? So instead, if we try and think of our presentation as a translation, what might become possible? So a translation is an activity of carrying meaning over from one context to another. But when you carry, not everything can be picked up and transported there will also be a deficiency because things are lost in translation as the saying goes. Um, that perfectly judged introduction to your paper, that excellent summary of the relevant literature, the rigor of your research, it might be hard to carry all of this. There is something that is lost, something is lost, but something is also found. So Ortega Gasset tells us that along with the deficiencies of translation, there are also the exuberances of translation. So there are aspects of meaning that appear in the translation, which are not part of the original. And so James White White tells us that the translation can succeed if we think of it as the composition of one text in response to another. So as a way of establishing relations by reciprocal gesture to be judged by a criteria of appropriateness. So if we, if we pause with that idea for a second, if you say, okay, so the presentation is a new text, it, it requires us to approach it with a translator's ethos. Well, what might that make possible? So the presentation is not the paper. The presentation is a particular genre. It is audiovisual. There is the spoken word, and then there is the visual element that an accompanying slide might provide you. And these are both elements that a paper doesn't have. So when you present, you do something else with your work. The presentation allows you to go back into this fresh mode of inquiry. So what might you find? What new thing emerges here? Perhaps it provides fresh insights that work their way back into your paper. Perhaps it gestures towards something new, the thing that comes after this work. Perhaps it opens up a set of connections with the people in that room. And that leads me to my second idiom, which is presentation as connection. So Davina Cooper asks us to think about writing as a form of contact. She says, writing should make contact a more active relationship than simply being accessible. So think about academic work as entering a conversation. What makes a good or bad conversationalist? And as Cooper goes on to suggest, a good academic conversationalist is one who converses in a way that enables, that stimulates, that encourages others to participate. And while in this particular example, Cooper's talking about writing, I'd say that this is even more pertinent in the context of the presentation. So one way to establish connection is to listen well. So listen well, 
to your co-presenters, listen well to other participants, listen for connection. Um, so very often we can default towards listening for the gap. So finding the flaw in the argument, the chink in the paper, but with the presentation format, if you're trying to listen to your other presenters, it is helpful to then think, what is the connection here? How do we relate to each other? So you might even make use of your presentation order if you are part of a panel, which is often the case. So if you're trying to have a conversation trying to make a connection, a good way to go about that is to see if you can draw out a connection in passing while you present or during the question and answer session. Doing that allows you to not just demonstrate that you're interested in what your other presenters have to say, but also assists them in making a connection with your work. And I've often found myself to be the beneficiary of very careful listeners within my panels, and it can be remarkably helpful. But another way to think about connection is in terms of attention, right? So attention, so how you might want the audience to be able to pay sustained attention to what you are saying and what you are presenting. And part of this goes back to my first point about translation. So when we sit with an academic paper, we're not bound to read it within a predetermined time slot. You know, so during that slot, if we miss out on some element of the paper, it does not become irretrievable. You can zone out of a paper you are reading. You can skip over bits that seem less relevant. You can return to earlier bits. You can read it for clarity. You can do all of those things, none of which are possible in a real-time presentation. Not if you actually want to absorb what the speaker is saying. And so as the presenter, the imperative is, how can you conduct the presentation in such a manner that it maintains the thread of connection, the thread of attention with the audience member? Um, and one thing, at least for me, um, I always try and write the presentation from scratch. So not from scratch in the sense of literally making up ideas, um, but from scratch in the sense that I like to write the presentation in a fresh document, even as I have my paper handy. And when I'm in the process of doing this, I have a person or two in mind and I'm speaking to them. So, you know, so sometimes you have a sense of your audience, sometimes you don't. In this case, for example, um, I felt like I was speaking with Ben and Kathleen, who I had a sense would probably be around for this conversation. Um, you know, and so I guess that's, that's something that kind of works for me, that sense of, okay, so this is the conversation I'm trying to establish as I write this. Um, but then there's another thing to kind of note about it, which is that that's something that works for me. It is my art. And that leads me to a third point. Um, so if you think about presentation as an art, as a way of going about things, there isn't a singular art, right? So when I speak about the art of the conference presentation, what I'm really telling you about is Danish's art, the art that works for me. And even then, my own art shifts. It shifts based on context, it shifts based on audience, based on the work that I present, based on the relations that I want to establish with the audience. And so it is helpful to think about what your art is. What is your voice? What is your disposition? What or who would you like to be for this presentation? Uh, what persona would you like to inhabit? Uh, and if those are the broader things, then there are somewhat more granular things to consider as well. So I mentioned earlier that the presentation is 
a particular genre. It is audiovisual. So the verbal and the visual are both inchoate. They are both incomplete. And part of the art of presentation is understanding that both the spoken word and the inscribed word or the image have their place. And then using the oral and the written to provide shape to each other, all right? As opposed to um, substitute or as opposed to even be a distraction. And we can kind of talk about that in the, in the conversation later because I do think um, there's a sense or there's an art to how much text you should fill your slides with. Um, a second point, whatever art that you choose, whatever persona that you establish, it is good to be consistent for the presentation. So in terms of your font, quite literally, in terms of your style, here you can see that I went with something incredibly minimalist. So, you know, it would be distracting if I just randomly had Taylor Swift appear, like, so probably don't, don't do that unless it dramatizes the point that you're trying to make. Um, three, don't bury the lead. I think this is a problem in academic writing, but it is definitely an issue in the conference presentation, right? So we take so much time, we're so careful in getting to the point um, we add so much nuance that the thread of connection is often lost. So one way in which I have considered experimenting with that, and it's a strategy that I've found very effective, is flipping my paper when it comes to the presentation. So I jump into the object that usually comes in at about section three of the paper. Um, you know, I place, so it's, it's the object, it's the case study, you kind of start, you place it front and center, um, you give the meat and then you circle back to provide the context and the fine grain detail. Um, and again, like there, there are kind of different ways to not bury the lead. This is just one that I found quite effective. Um, fourth, uh, consider how you might be able to use social media strategically. So you'll see that I put my Twitter handle on the slide. And when it comes to academic conferences, particularly Twitter does become a very helpful tool. So in advance of a conference, it's a good idea to seek out other participants online. You might also consider sharing your title slide, maybe a short post about what you're going to be presenting about. And again, it's about figuring out how to make connections and how to make contact, right? So that's just, anyways, those are just some prompts, I think, to just guide our conversation um, and I'd be curious to hear about what works for the others, what challenges you faced, what strategies you have maybe. Um, yeah, but thanks for listening. That's absolutely fantastic, Danish. Um, some really great reflections there. So I want to encourage people to either indicate by, you know, an actual wave of their hand or putting up of their of their hand by putting a video on or a avatar hand will do or pop a question in the chat if you've um, got any but I might start us off if I can abuse shamelessly um, abuse chair privileges that was you know absolutely fantastic I was wondering whether Taylor Swift was going to get in there and she did uh, right towards the end and I, I guess that's kind of um, that kind of connects uh, to a to a kind of the point you were making about bury the lead um, you know and wanting to kind of articulate you know so I came 
wanting and expecting some Taylor Swift. Um, and I was kind of like, where is she? What What's going on here? I was all, ad- <laughs> all adrift. Um, and she came in really quite late. Um, so I guess one way um, you could think about that is, and I, I mean this kind of as a way to think broadly about, you know, we approach particular, we approach kind of particular um, speakers and conference presentations. We might've seen them in the, in the, um, in the program, we might know of them and we might go to watch them or listen to them, um, expecting or wanting certain things. And so we listen with that kind of um, intent. And then there are other kinds of conference presentations where we just find, we find ourselves listening to other people that we don't know particularly well. We don't know them or their research. Um, And I often find both when I'm the person giving that kind of a conference paper uh, and also when I'm listening to them, both hard to kind of give uh, and hard to receive, hard to listen to. And I think part of that problem is what you have kind of articulated in terms of burying the lead. I mean, I often find, um, you know, it doesn't sound like long, the standard 20-minute conference presentation, but I often find them quite difficult to follow. I didn't find you difficult to follow at all just now. You structured it for us. There was a kind of narrative art to it. I knew where we were going. Um, But I often find that that, uh, people don't raise the stakes and the the point of the point right up front in a conference paper. And those who kind of um, fail to do so, I think are actually really quite difficult to follow. So the advice that I've often given Sometimes I follow it myself. Often, you know, I'm not sure whether PhD students or, or colleagues follow this advice, which is to kind of ruin the narrative suspense of a conference presentation. Um, to say right at the beginning, you know, you're going to get Taylor Swift. She might be a little later today than you might have expected her, but this, you know, it's comforting. You know, this is what you this is what you've come for. You're getting it. Um, whereas I often find, and maybe it's because I've you know got poor attention span, but listening to a 20 minute conference paper that isn't scaffolded in that sense and doesn't kind of articulate the stakes up up front, um, I find I find it's not an easy listen um, sometimes. So I guess I just yeah. wanted to kind of say thank you for for putting your your finger on that point of kind of not burying the lead in terms of like articulating the stakes up front or at least signaling it so people have got more of a handle and I wanted to invite you to talk to add any other reflections you had about that if you don't that's fine we can go to Angela Smith who has got a virtual hand up I can see um yeah just one point to add about how that can be helpful for the process of writing as well is um look like often when we're presenting at a conference you are presenting a paper that is incomplete right um unless you're just one of those people who's published the paper and then whatever, I mean, that's, that's a whole other conversation, but yeah. So you're, you're trying to kind of find something. Um, and again, I think for me, it's often the, the bit that's incomplete is somewhere in the descriptive work that comes later. So I think if you kind of start with that, um, you're actually really helping yourself um, in doing or furthering that work of description, but also kind of keeping it front and center in everyone's minds, because then, you're going to kind of come back to it twice and then that's just the thing that they associate you know your 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 presentation with and then also keep in mind that if you're at a conference you're one of maybe 10 presentations that people are seeing over the course of the day it's just it's hard to remember it's hard to rehearse all that information so i think it's just repetition is good fantastic i agree that's really helpful um okay i'm seeing some hands i'm going to go to angela thank you danish that was really nice um it made me think of uh, Fleur Johns's presentation about art and artfulness at the Melbourne workshop and this kind of um, 
you know, that's what's held up as the best sort of style of presentation where the the art of it or the craft of it becomes invisible and you just speak in this very natural way. And that's that's how the audience really holds, you know, that's how you hold their attention. And last night we um, attended Jess White's lecture where she really delivered the public lecture in its genre where the general public can understand and follow and listen. And she's dipping in and out of, you know, deeper political theory, but also kind of examples from the news, you know, and uh, I was thinking about your focus on the audience that I think when we're often writing presentations, we're trying to think of our paper or our set of ideas or our chapter or our thesis and how we can possibly get it all in there and get it conveyed. And I think what you're highlighting is the you know, how to hold someone's attention because it's really hard to listen and it's hard to listen to complex material. And when you see someone do it really well, like Jess White, you, you, it really makes you think from the side of the audience. So to what extent when you're kind of writing from scratch, are you really kind of thinking about the experience of the listener and, and what gets transmitted versus what you have to share? Thanks, Angela. I love that question. My silence is only because I'm thinking about it. I think um, this is, it's not, it's not going to address the question directly, but it it kind of goes back to uh, a, a different point I was making about the, the specificity of the genre in terms of, so there's, there's the spoken and the verbal, and then there's the written. Now, of course, there are people I think you can just get by without the visual. Um, I think there are very few. Um, and there's a certain kind of mastery that, you know, you, you kind of need to have, which I probably comes with time and experience. But for me, the the metaphor that actually kind of works really well is like, what is the dramaturgy of this presentation, right? So what are the ebbs and flows? How, for example, am I building up to a certain point? And how can I build up to it in the most dramatically effective kind of manner? And in, in or, you know, that there will be these moments. And so for me, for example, today, the moment while I was writing this was when it comes to talking about translation, where your pace has to kind of, has to ebb because you're then kind of expressing a slightly more complex idea than you might have at other points. And, and so, at that moment, that's where the text kind of comes in because you you then provide that slab of um, you know written material. You give the audience some time to kind of deal with it. So I think it's really it's about saying, look, here is this. I have this certain frame of time, but it's like ten minutes or fifteen minutes or thirty minutes. And how do I mark the crests and troughs? Um, while also, I think. Um, and, and that's the other thing with the longer conversation, right? So it it is, I think, impossible to hold people's attention for more than 20 to 30 minutes. If people manage that, then they're incredibly good speakers. But I think I also feel some level of comfort with the fact that people might tune out uh, of what I'm saying. And then it's actually all right. So when you're when I'm doing something longer to have material that feels like filler or isn't, it's just not always... Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Danish. That's um, fantastic. I'm going to 
shoot to uh, Francis next, if I may, but just before I do, just on that question of filler, um, I've started to try and kind of put filler into, <laughs> into my conference papers now. And I've learned to do this from listening to many podcasts and a kind of good technique in podcasts I often find in the, uh, the example I'm thinking of is the kind of, um, you know, the standard interview format of the New York Times podcast, The Daily, where it's often Michael Barbaro, whose voice I'm in love with, um, you know, he's interviewing a Times journalist. And you can see the fillers built into to that podcast where he will kind of ask a faux naive question of, of the person that he's interviewing. I was like, oh, so Danish, what you're really telling me is that there are three things I need to know about a conference paper, you know, translation, connection and art. And you're like, yes, that's right, Ben. Um, and for me, they're almost built in for when my when my attention kind of wanders as I'm doing the dishes. Um, but it's a really helpful, helpful to the <laughs> listener um, resort. So I started to build that into my, um, some DIY filler into my conference presentations. Francis, if I can shoot to you now come and ask your question thanks so much ben is that coming through to people yeah lovely um and thanks Danish, for that presentation um yeah really really interesting um i guess i had a question just um responding to to it so you talked about um how about the idea of um, translating information from your example of a poem to the screen um and i guess i'm curious about then the slightly different situation that you also mentioned about how in a conference we might be presenting thoughts in progress, thinking in progress, um, incomplete works, um, and whether that's actually something different, whether what we're actually trying to do there in the presentation is not, you know, here are the results of my finding, you know, one, two, three, four, here's my list please receive that parcel listener, um, whether it's more in the nature of a provocation to the listener, um, whether is it justifiable for us to actually, you know, want something in return for um, in response to our provocation. And I guess just wondering if you have any responses to that kind of slightly different dynamic between the presenter and the audience and how, you know, an approach to preparing that might be a bit different. Thank you. Yeah, um, thanks, thanks, Francis. So um, yeah, I'm just thinking back to the last time I had to deal with that kind of situation, which was actually, yeah, just, just, just about two months ago. And, and it's, it, it goes back to the point that I was telling Ben about. So you, you've kind of written out this paper and then, and then there's, there's the core substantive kind of element, which is, you know, you just don't know where it's going. I, th I think even in that case, what I found really helpful was, so this is, it, it's kind of hard doing this in the academic context, but um, to, to present the vulnerability of the argument or the inquietness of the argument and to actually, because I think like the, the, one of the tendencies can be, all right, so this part doesn't quite work. Let me kind of bury it again, right? Let me kind of um, and uh, one of the best experiences I've had at a conference was when I was with a panelist who a identified that and then kind of gently called me out on it. Uh, but it was really good, I think, because what I then kind of did right after that was say, okay, no, this is this is silly. Kind of bring that point front and center and then see what happens. And then that the discomfort that I had that actually became the point of that paper. So. Obviously, I think this also requires cultivating a certain kind of listener who is, you know, is 
can can engage with their vulnerability and then not kind of jump down your throat and kind of attack you and then like that's that's that, that's a different kind of conversation but i think maybe if if we're able to kind of start with that in a sense lay our cards on the table then we might also create different kinds of listeners in the process is is the utopic hope <laughs> that's incredibly rich um kathleen your virtual hand came down but i'm going to go to you nonetheless <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much, Danish. There's so much in here. It's just wonderful and a demonstration in itself of the art of conference paper giving, the way that you presented your ideas. Um, a few of the questions have related to, I think, the point that you made about connection. And I feel this is really important. This feels like the nub of really um, what you're conveying here. And I, a few things strike me. Um, the difference between connection and narcissism, <laughs> you know, it cuts both ways, right? We've all been participants in conferences with the person with the rambling comment, which is a statement on the possible threads that connect your work with theirs. But I'm interested in the flip side, which is what you were presenting, was the idea of creating a presentation that is intended to connect rather than to just convey. And I think that's what Francis was talking about. And I just wondered if you could connect that up with what you were just saying a moment ago about presenting the vulnerability or incoherentness of your argument and just unpack that a little bit more, um, thinking about you know, creating a paper that is, is incomplete intentionally, that is directed toward building connection rather than conveying a um, something complete or um, parceled up already. Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of think of another example that might convey that point better. I might, I might need some time to kind of get back to that, but maybe we have another question. So, because I just don't want to repeat the same example again. Yeah. That, that's fine, I can... Um... Yeah. I can be, I can play filler um, and, uh, or I can be like kind of Muzak while we're waiting for questions. I don't have to, Laura's got a question. I'm gonna go straight to Laura. You don't need to hear from me, Laura. Hi, <laughs> hi everyone. Thank you, Danish, for all of these ideas. And I really loved the strategy of putting the poem front and center at the beginning. Um, I've just got a really practical question since we're here on Zoom. And the last conference paper I did was on Zoom at a hybrid conference. Um, and I just kind of prepared as usual and did the PowerPoint and kind of did the thing that I usually would do if I was in real life with people. But I'm just wondering, have you picked up anything that you think would be useful in terms of preparation when you are going to be doing a hybrid conference because I feel like Zoom's going to be with us now for a long time and is there something there's obviously differences between being in an online space like we are right now and together and what sort of ways do you think we can kind of mediate that and negotiate that um, so that we can build this connection um, but in a different way yeah so that all right so um my last sort of experience with this was with the LSA, uh, which is already a really chaotic kind of massive conference, right? And then um, it was it was 
uh, our panel was particularly caring. It was two of us on hybrid, uh, sort of zooming in, uh, and then three people in person. Uh, apparently, everyone was um, just at the point of heat exhaustion in the Lisbon room where this was happening. So it was, it was just bad, and then you know the tech setup wasn't quite working. So. So I think what, what seems to kind of work really well there, and again, this is just going to, it's going to sound like repetition perhaps, but was to just get to the object from the very start um, and, you know, kind of attend to the fact that, you know, everyone in the room was kind of frayed already. So A, get to the object, but also um, the advantage that I had here was that I was the fifth speaker. So, even as I kind of began speaking about what I was, what I was kind of conveying, um, I tried to bring in at least three of the four who'd kind of gone before me and say, all right, so as X said this and Y said this, and now this is where I'm going to kind of come in. And, and actually, because I had, I had my presentation on my iPad. And so one thing that I kept doing was every time I felt like there was a point of connection with a different speaker, I'd make a note of it. And so then when I actually kind of read the presentation out, I try and keep jumping back to that speaker's point. So that I think just, I think you just have to work that, but that much harder when you're in that kind of context. Kathleen, I'm still thinking about your question and I just, I don't have a good enough example. I'm sorry. Cause it's, it's, I mean, it's a great point. I'm just, uh, yeah. No, you can take it as a comment, Anish. Yeah, yeah, I just felt that it was really interesting, you know, that tension, um, because often conference papers on both sides are, um, you know, very narcissistic. <laughs> we want to convey what, what our project is about and somebody else wants to connect it to their own. And yeah. I was just fascinated by the way that you're more um, benevolent reading <laughs> of that and the ways that we can think about that in a positive way, construct our papers with that intent um, rather than it being accidental and then a slippage into narcissism. Yeah, because look, I love comments over questions. I feel like <laughs> just kind of, because then I just feel like they're easy to engage with. So um, yeah, so. <laughs> One thing I would add actually is yeah. um, just further to Laura's comment around online versus in-person and technology <laughs> and you were talking about you know it's the rare speaker who can engage somebody uh, for a sustained period of time without any visual aid yeah. and um, a number of times when I've been presenting and this has happened to me as well um, in online conferences um, you know the visuals have failed and so how to recover the situation um, you know, I, perhaps it's a lost art <laughs> um, to be the orator who can speak without PowerPoint slides. Wonder if you can uh, think about that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think there so it's a few different things. Right? I think if you're presenting on Zoom, it's so much harder if you don't have the visual kind of thing to, to help you because there's already this sense of disembodiment, right? So. So I think it's easier to kind of think about that when you're in person. And I think, um, I, I, again, I have seen people who've done this really well. And it seems like in almost every instance where the person's done this really well, it's been through that idea that the presentation was a separate entity that was written specifically for the purposes of that conference and that audience. So there was a sense in which it was either kind of 
addressing the people in the room or it was clearly kind of crafted in a certain kind of way. So, and the point there quite, quite simply, I think is just that it wasn't, it wasn't the written paper, it was a different kind of entity. And so even if it didn't quite have everything, um, even if there was a certain inquietness to it, because it had, there's this thing that Peter Brooks talks about. So um, it's how every time we, so the example there is in the context of the theater, but I think it does apply here. So there's a way in which performers kind of go on stage every night, they say the same words, but the, but there's a certain ethos with which you approach it, which is just that this is the new thing. This is a new thing every day. This is a new thing every performance. And so I think just bringing that kind of energy to the words activates them, I think in a way that, um, yeah. I um, I really like that. That's a fantastic suggestion. I just wanted to pick up, again, this is me um, providing filler while you all raise your hands or jump into the chat if you've got a question. Um, I think Laura's question is absolutely bang on about, you know, and I think you're right to say that, unfortunately, um, Zoom conferences or workshops are, are here to stay, at least in part and how we need to kind of adapt ourselves to them. I just, I agree with you, Danish. I think that the there is some need for the visual, either a single slide or a picture or something when we're, when we're presenting. Um, uh, I tend to think that if I'm presenting in a room, and again, to go back to your, to go back to your point about everybody having a different art, my, I don't use PowerPoints at all, not even kind of artfully constructed imagistic ones or poetic ones like you've shown us today, but none at all. I tend to just think, look, I'm enough of a visual for you and I'm going to try and hold your attention. So my art is usually for a conference paper to try and give a conference paper with no notes um, and just looking like maintaining eye contact and telling a bit of a story. So they're relatively relaxed, they're low in detail and it's it tilts towards conversation, not erudition perhaps. But I guess that gets to your point, which really resonated with me, Danish, your starting point about translation. And I'm trying to, I was trying to think of a way to express this. I think temporality is too, um, is too kind of highfalutin uh, a term. I guess what I really mean is more timing or syncing, right? Uh, or sequencing. So I'm, you know, there's a different experience of giving a conference paper if you are working towards something, if something is inchoate and you you are writing something for the conference. Um, perhaps you've used the conference as a spur to writing or it just so happens that the timing is right and that you're working on that topic. Oh, and there's a conference that's popped up and you just, you get to go there and have this delightful conversation. Um, I often find um, that I'm doing things in the reverse and I've written something, maybe it's a couple of years old now, it's a bit out of date, as much as I might try to breathe newness into it, Danish, as you're suggesting. And I think, oh, great, that's a good example. That's a good means for me to go to this conference. Um, and But then the, the, the active translation is a little joyless because it's it's kind of it's already written I've said it it's out there in the public domain and I often find myself kind of retrofitting it into the conference genre so I'm taking kind of eight to ten thousand word article and I'm giving a 20 minute account of it which is really kind of it's really difficult and I guess the thing that I am reminded of listening to you on the score of translation is the being comfortable with loss and actually, you know, you need to be you need to be comfortable with losing a lot, like losing a lot of your argument and the detail and the nuance, um, and being able to just leave that on the cutting room floor. And so, on the topic of translation, I thought you performed that so beautifully. Like listening to you, 
I knew that there's a lot under the hood there, theoretically, when you're talking about translation. I'm like, oh, you know, he's talking about Benjamin on the task of the translator and Derrida and Babel. And, you know, this, I knew there was a lot there, but it wasn't there, right? It was, uh, you know, like you you were performing it lightly. And I often, I've often given this advice to PhD students presenting at conferences to kind of hold things back, to kind of perform a certain inchoateness, Um because then that often that will often seduce questions. Sometimes it seduces bad questions where people think they're listening for the gap and ah, you didn't mention Derrida or Benjamin. And then of course you get to come back and you're like, well, of course I've read those. You know, don't be stupid. Um, and and you can and you can deal with the question that way. But I think it often. I guess what I'm saying is it conduces to a better conversation as well if you've kind of disciplined yourself to to keep some stuff back, <laughs> to keep some stuff back. Because I guess it can let your listeners in. Um, either the unkind listeners who are thinking, oh, I've, you know, I've got him now. He didn't mention this. And I'm going to ask a question about that. Or the ones who are genuinely curious because you haven't laid it out for them. So, yeah, sorry. I'm just I'm just riffing, really hoping yeah. that somebody's going to come up with a genuine question. But I, I guess it's a kind of, it's a, it's a thumbs up to this idea of translation and what, you know the attitude that we have to have to it that that you, it's okay to have things in reserve <laughs> it doesn't have to be a full uh, one-to-one and and that's a really good point Ben, because it's also i guess one thing that you phd students particularly might struggle with is the question of expertise so you have the sense that you have to kind of establish expertise and one way that can really happen is through citing and through kind of yeah mentioning you know the Derrida or the Benjamin of it all and I think it's again it's it's about hoping that you get the kind of listener who appreciates what you're doing there but yeah fantastic uh, Laura I see a, I see a yellow hand sorry I've already had a question I think people were talking in the chat so uh -huh. I'll just be quick um just as a meta question when I was first studying my PhD, I found it actually really intimidating to join the conversation and to actually raise my hand in a conference scenario and to think up a question and to kind of have the confidence to kind of be involved and do that. I was just wondering if any of you have any pointers about, you know, just really easy ways to, to raise questions and to, to feel confident to kind of be part of that discussion when you're listening to a presentation. That that's a fantastic question, Danish. I wonder you can I'll give you a first go at um, answering it. And just while you're thinking, I'm just looking in the chat and I'm seeing that there's some back and forth about uh, tech and different settings on Zoom, which I think are really helpful in terms of fostering connection. So thank you, Ra and Angela, for hopping in. Um, um, so uh, two two things there, Laura. I'm actually I find that I'm pretty. Like it's, it's gotten a bit easier now, but I think I actually quite struggle with that point about raising a question when I'm in an unfamiliar setting. So I find it very easy in, say, if it's an ILA session, for example, because then I know people and I can kind of draw on connections. Um, and that's where the question of social media or just kind of finding someone's, just, just kind of finding someone's email address becomes really helpful because I've then tried to just, I accepted that the question wouldn't come up, come to me, but that this paper had left a certain kind of mark and then making sure to kind of follow up with that person and just being like, that's all right too. Because, you know, ultimately asking that question is also just the kind of performance, right? Like it's really about the conversation that you have later. But second, in terms of uh, 
a style of question that I find really easy is one which is about trying to connect points between two speakers' papers, right? So I see a theme in one person's paper, I see something in the other person's paper and I say, all right, so here's the thing that I saw, what, what do you think? And then that just, you know, that just means that you've listened to the people you, yeah. Yeah. Can I just say, Laura, I think that question, the question, I mean, the meta question about the question is a, is a really, really rich one. I, um, you know, I think there is, to come back to this question um, that Danish started us off with, there's a real art to it, both in terms of, I think, an art to answering questions. So I remember watching my um, aunt once, who's a quite esteemed um art historian give a public lecture in London at uh, the Courtauld um, and I remember thinking how amazing her kind of her responses to questions are it was just incredible she fielded these really combative ones where she kind of diffused them beautifully and then she she received ones that frankly even to my mind, and I was not exactly of the cognoscenti, just seemed batshit crazy. And she lifted them up and she treated them as if they were the most insightful question. And it was, and it was, talking to her afterwards at the pub, it was like, how did you do that? And she said, look, it takes practice. It's, it's a long, it's a, you know, but it would, the, it, she was clear that it would, on what she was doing, it was a real art of like diffusing and lifting up. But I think actually there's also, there's, there's different levels of art. There's an art to the, to the conference questioner and Kathleen has given us an example one with which we're all kind of sadly I'm sure quite familiar I'll just point out that Kathleen and I did our doctoral studies at Birkbeck where this was very much the de rigueur it was the genre of the kind of long-winded you know intervention comment how smart am I masquerading not even masquerading as a bloody question um, but from from kind of Birkbeck the example that I often use our former supervisor uh, Peter Fitzpatrick, I thought, was a fantastic questioner. He would often ask these kind of questions where they weren't kind of, they weren't pointed at the moment of delivery. It was only a couple of days later where you realised, oh, God, he was really in this kind of avuncular kind of, you know, lovely way, pressing on something. Um, and you would fall apart in the privacy of your own thoughts three or four days later as your doctoral project just kind of went like that. But nobody saw it happen, right? Because at that point of impact, it was, it was, it was jovial, it was avuncular, it was beautifully done. And again, that, you know, I, I can't do that. I'm not sure if I'm ever going to be able to do that. But I, the third level of artfulness, I think, is actually in the the organizer and the curator so i guess it's implicit in danish's point about illa it's like well who who's set up this space and who's enabled you know how how uh, who's thought about space and lighting and and um and sequencing and temporality and you know i tend to find melburnians um are much better at this <laughs> you guys are great at doing this kind of stuff about generating conversations rather than the kind of combative question and answer but i guess that's just to say I find it really difficult. I used to find it incredibly nerve-wracking to ask a question at conferences. I now find it really, I now sit listening, which is a really poor form of listening. I sit listening as a more senior academic thinking, I've got to have a question for everybody. What's my question? You know, what's my question? You know, I can't, there can't be silence, which is another failing on my part, but it, it's or, or a difficulty, I suppose. Um, Kathleen, I saw a hand. Just to add into that conversation, um, thinking about it as something that is a practiced art or technique. And when I was first trying to learn how to do this, the only way I could possibly manage it 
was through preparation. And so by looking carefully at the abstracts of the people whose papers I was going to listen to in advance and already starting to think about, even note down some possible points of connection, some resonances with my own work, some things that as they were then speaking might unfold in my mind more easily. That's just a technique that I learned as, you know, <clears throat> a way to be able to participate more fully because otherwise it was me who couldn't think of the question until two days later <laughs> when I'd actually processed some of the information that had been conveyed to me, but then it's too late to, to join in. And so, yeah, doing, doing that thinking work ahead of time, I suppose, some of it. And one thing that has helped, sorry, um, just in terms of confidence boosting is if you listen carefully to a lot of other questions and you notice how bad they are, because people are really terrible with questions often. They're, they're rambly, they just, they're incoherent. It's not quite clear. So I think that kind of, because you you then kind of be like, okay, I this is, this is nowhere near the level of thought and care that I'm putting into this question. I think that means something. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I'm thinking, um, you know, I'm struck because I'm in the middle of teaching. At the moment. Actually, no, I'm in the middle of marking, which is a worse place to be than being in the middle of teaching. But this is a kind of reflection from the classroom that, you know, we, the kind I say to students, it's like the best, the, the best form of questioning class or the ones that I'm looking for to work with as a teacher are the ones where you say, I don't understand what this means. Or, you know, I think Marx is saying this, or, you know, who the hell knows what Foucault is saying, blah, blah, blah. Can you explain or can you put it in a different way? Whereas in a conference setting, I can't remember the last time, perhaps I've never heard a question from the floor saying, I didn't understand your argument or I didn't get, you know, and it's possible for that to come across as, as, as an attack um, implicitly, you don't know what you're talking about or you haven't conveyed it properly. But I can't think of the last time, if at all, I've, I've actually heard somebody quite genuinely say, I, I didn't quite get what you were saying or could you, or I don't know that literature. You know, nobody, it's all a performance in that sense of demonstrating mastery or cleverness or the rambling question that we're all too familiar with. So again, I, I'm not sure that as a more junior scholar I would have been comfortable maybe I'm still not comfortable with saying oh, I don't understand <laughs> can you explain it um but I'm sure they're the most valuable forms of question I think it's an indictment on the conference setting and the and the genre of it that they're, they're precisely the kinds of questions that we don't get we we do get the ones like have you read Derrida or where's the Benjamin um which are you know phallic and pointless yeah what a note to end on. Um, I think it I think it reinforces your points earlier around performing lightly. And that just always brings to mind um, you know, the idea of being kind to your audience in the same way that a writer should be kind to their reader. And, you know, I think that you did that exceptionally well, Danish, in your presentation today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Danish, and thank you, Kathleen, for um saving us on that last note um that was a really fantastic presentation i learned so much from listening to you and from the connection and conversation that you generated um i guess it's a testament to what we can do forced to do but can do on zoom these days um so it's a real privilege to listen to you thank you for your time your thoughtfulness your energy um your translation your connection and your art absolutely marvellous. Everybody, thank you for coming. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Um, thank you to Danish. And you will have to stay tuned because I don't think we have 
Kathleen, you can you can nod or shake your head at me if I'm wrong in saying this. I don't think we actually have um, arranged any more upcoming ones. We plan to, obviously, but but you'll have to kind of watch this space. Is that right? That's right. And we would welcome any suggestions for topics that you would like to explore or people you would like to hear from. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Topics, presenters, anything, send it through to either Kathleen, myself, uh, Sanja or Angela at ILA. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Um, we'll see you next time, whenever next time may be. You've been listening to the ILA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.